will be in Matthew 13. If you'll go ahead and be turning there. It used to be, no, not used to be, it still is taboo to write Merry Christmas as Merry Xmas. For some of us, it really bothers us. Well, let me give you a different take. Um, the very first letter of the word Christ written in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, is chi. You know how you write chi? X. Mary Christmas. Okay? So if you can spell it out if you want, and that's great, and it, you know, Christ is clear and very obvious, or you can be more subtle. But maybe we don't jump on people's case quite as quickly now or as snarkily as I have before and say, oh, I can't believe you took the Christ out of Christmas. No, they were just more covert about it. And you know what? It's an opportunity, right? Because people write Christmas shorthand like that just because it's easier. And some have no idea that Christ is in Christmas even when you write it out. If you underline the word Christ in Christmas, they're like, oh, I never saw that before. So. Anyway, just we're going to be focusing on Christ. Hopefully we do that every week. This week, Jesus is going to make a very strong case about Christ. He's going to ask the question or answer the question, is he worth everything? He's going to ask that and he's going to answer that. Is Christ worth everything? What are you willing to give up? If you had to give up to get Christ, what would you be willing to give up? That's the, that's the question on the table today, and he's going to use a handful of parables to make that point. Now, a parable is a practical story, illustration, well, a story to illustrate a spiritual truth. In some cases, it's revealing to some people. It brings clarity and vision to what is being taught or said in that little uh, short story, and in some cases, it actually conceals We talked about that at length last week. You can read earlier in the chapter and see that. We're going to start in verse 24. And there's a couple of other tips when you're reading a parable that you need to think about. These are hard, right? One of them is you need to quit thinking like a 21st century American, and you need to step into your um, borrowed first century Jewish shoes and try to see things from someone who lived 2,000 years ago in a country most of us have never been to in Israel in a third world country, and by many standards at that time. And we also need to realize that parables were not just written to give us a story of information. They're there for transformation. They are there to challenge you and I to think well about spiritual things. Okay, so there's the purpose behind it. Now, um, one of the commentators I like to use as I prepare these messages is in the Preach the Word series, and the one for Matthew is by Sean O'Donnell, okay? And I highly recommend his commentary, and he takes these, we're going to look at seven of the eight parables today. They're all short. Last week, we looked at the first one, which was actually very long, and the one that all the others are built on. And we're going to, he says, basically, there's three themes at work here, and as you look at them, it's pretty clear that these themes are there. The first one is judgment. Merry Christmas. The second one is growth, and the third one is gain, okay? And I like to think of the difference between growth and gain as growth is what, if you plant something, okay, 
Um, it grows, matures, and if it has the opportunity and it's in good soil, like we saw last week, it's going to bear fruit, the crop. And while we may think of that as the gain, the real gain is to know the one who made it grow. You know? It's not just to receive the benefit of the creation, of that which the Creator made, but to know the Creator. And so that's gain. That's where he's going. And to answer the question in a way that you would expect us to say, yes, Jesus is worth everything. Think back to the, uh, the time when Jesus had an interaction with the rich young ruler. No, maybe it was, it was, I can't remember. It might not have been him. And he basically asked this, this fellow, says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and through the course of the conversation, Jesus says, you're close. All you lack is this, because he knew the man's hang up. And he said, sell everything you have, this wealthy man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, the money you make to the poor, and then come and follow me. In other words, sell everything, go bankrupt in a physical sense, and then come follow me, and I will show you true riches. Riches that will last, riches that will exceed what you've had. And to say that to someone who's very wealthy is a high bar to overcome. This is why Jesus said, it's really difficult for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. And I would put most Americans in that bucket of the rich, which is part of the reason why we don't see more spiritual awakening in our country, both from those who don't know the Lord coming to know the Lord, but also for those in the church living out with vibrancy the faith that we're called to. So this is going to challenge all of us. It's challenged me. It's still challenging me. And it probably should never stop, if we're honest. If we ever say we've got this, then our lives better look a lot like Mother Teresa before we say that. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are so grateful that um, we can come into your presence in the name of Jesus and that you pour out your Spirit on us. We need that. We ask you to do that. We need your Spirit to work in our hearts, to soften our hearts, to be more receptive to the seed of the Spirit, gospel truth, this good news that the kingdom of God is near. We need your spirit to enlighten our eyes and our minds so that we can see the spiritual truths we need to see. And, and then we need you to enlighten our minds so that we can comprehend, understand. And then we need courage, Lord. We need the courage to believe it and to act on that belief. That's a, that's a supernatural work that we cannot accomplish unless you step in. So we ask you, Lord, today to speak to each of us. Meet us right where we are. Love us through our stubborn-mindedness, our hard-headedness, our hard-heartedness. And bring us to the place you would have us be today, starting with me. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we looked at the parable of the sower, is what Jesus calls it, where we see the four different kinds of soils representing different heart conditions, talking about spiritual heart conditions, and, and then he goes into these other seven. So we're going to roll through these pretty quickly, follow along in your Bibles, starting in verse 24. Most of these words, every parable is told by Jesus. There's just a few words in between for transition's sake that Matthew writes of course, he's recording all this. And remember, Matthew, unlike Luke, who is more chronological in his gospel, Matthew's more thematic in the way he packages and, and um, orchestrates and arranges his gospel. 
So um, starting in verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. Who is them? He's speaking to the crowd. If you look in the verses preceding, he's speaking to a large crowd of people, which includes his disciples and includes the religious leaders. So he told them, this crowd, another parable. And this is the kingdom parable of, this is the parable of the weeds. Um, sidebar, I don't like weeds in my lawn. My daughters and I have an ongoing tug of war about what's a weed um, because when uh, they were younger, they would go find the dandelions in our yard, right? You know what I'm going with this, right? And they would pick the dandelion when it was full of seeds and blow those seeds all over my lawn. And it didn't matter how much logic I used with them, why they shouldn't do that. You do that in a neighbor's yard, not my, no, I didn't say that. They continued to not see the point because it was so much fun to pick up one of those fuzzy dandelions and blow the seeds all over the yard. So I lost that battle many times, but, um, and, and some people would say, it's not a weed, it's a great salad, a dandelion salad. So you lost me there. Anyway, the kingdom of heaven, which is the topic that he keeps going to in his parables. And remember, the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God without saying God because it's so sacred to the Jews. Is like, okay, whenever you see as or like, and it looks like a metaphor, that's a specific kind of metaphor called a simile. Ms. Daniels, you, you appreciate that, my 10th grade English teacher. All right, that's the only thing I remember. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like what? A man who sowed good seed in his field. A man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them, and so let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. That's the parable. So if you had nothing else to go on but that, that's kind of how Jesus gives some sense of where you are in your heart. Like, do you understand that? Not that necessarily do you understand it in full, but do you, do you see? And, and, and really the test of this is, are you leaning into belief or are you leaning away from God in rebellion? That's where God reveals more or conceals, basically giving us what we want or don't want. Okay? So that's the parable. And then what he follows that with, I'll explain in a minute, or Jesus will explain in a minute, he, he nestles in there again to the crowd, this parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, which we're going to skip over and come right back to. Verse 34, right after those two parables, which I'm going to come back to, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Verse 35, so it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house. Okay, so the setting is changing. The crowd is left outside. Who follows him? 
his disciples came in, came to him and, and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So here we go. Here's your explanation. He answered, 37, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Let's pause there and let's go back through that briefly. So he answers and he's starting to unpack the imagery, right? It's a, it's a metaphor, it's a simile where he's, things mean other things. And whenever you're looking at a parable, generally you're looking for one main point. Sometimes there's one or there's two or three, but they're, they're not like allegories and there's not all these layers. Of, there's a lot of details here that you could take and run with to places that this parable is not intended. These parables are really intended to drive home a big point. In the case of the weeds, it's, it has to do with judgment, okay? Gospel judgment. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. And in application later, we're going to see really anyone who sows the good seed fits that description, even if their motives are not good. And Paul speaks to that in one of his letters. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The field is the mission field. The field is where we, you and I, live, work, learn, and play. It's around the corner. It's around the world. That's the field. It's the sandbox, if you will. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for, maybe not what you were expecting, the people of the kingdom. Okay, If we went back to the parable from last week, the seed represented the gospel, the message. Here, it represents the people that are proclaiming that message. Okay, So it, it's, in essence, the same thing, but it includes the person. And I'm sure there's nuance there that I haven't discovered yet that is significant and why he did that. But that's... That's for another time. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. So you notice how direct and straightforward Jesus is when he talks about evil, when he talks about an evil one, his kingdom, and the devil himself, also known as Satan, or the accuser, or the father of lies, or the dragon, or the serpent. All of these are different names in Scripture for the very real enemy, who was Lucifer, is now Satan and he is real, and he is active, and he is working for a season by permission from God. Okay? That's why there's still evil rampant in the world. It's why things haven't been tied up in a nice, neat bow in our world like we would like to see it. Even though Jesus has died for all sins, this is still playing out. Okay? But there's a day coming when he will be dealt with in finality, and he will have no more power, no more reign. So, But for the purpose of this, we're seeing he's at work in our world where we live, work, and play. He's actively at work. And the weeds are the people of the evil one. These are people he's going to describe right here, starting in 39. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. So the end of the age is the end of the church age, which began 2,000 years ago. We can look at the book of Acts in chapter 2 when Peter preaches the first time after Jesus has ascended. So Jesus dies on the cross. Good Friday. He is buried. He rises from the dead on what we call Resurrection Day, a.k.a. Easter. Forty days he visits with people who are followers of his in a physical body, resurrected body. And then after those 40 days, he ascends to heaven. Remember in the Apostles' Creed, it says he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's why we know God's left-handed because he's sitting on the right hand, right? So he sits there in that place of power. Didn't go over very well. Um, So... So um, 
the harvest is the end of the age. That is when Jesus will come back, the second coming. The first coming we celebrate at Christmas, second coming, he hasn't come yet. I don't know, we'll probably have another holiday for that in the millennial kingdom. But he comes back, and there will be a final judging that happens for all people. We'll all stand before God and we'll answer. Okay? Um, there is, uh, so then the, the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. They're the ones that do the bidding for the Lord. Now, verse 40 starts to unpack some of this. All right, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Okay? I expected this to say, and they will weed out of his world. But this is very specific. It's, not, it's saying his kingdom implying that not only are there lost people in the world, which we would expect that there were people apart from God, but this says within the kingdom, which makes me want to go back to Matthew 7 to remind us of something. Matthew 7, starting, and sorry guys, in the back I didn't tell you about this. Verse 21 in chapter 7 says, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he makes this very sobering statement, these, these statements. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you see the connection? What's really hard for us to swallow here is that there are people in our churches today, in our world today, who do things that make them look like a follower of Christ. Okay? and they're not. Some of them are not. Okay? It doesn't say, I knew you and you walked away. It's not, I knew you and I walked away from you. It's, I never knew you, which tells us that, and we kind of heard that from Gary when he was talking about the Chinese. God works through people that aren't his people, miraculously. So just because somebody did a miracle in your church, it doesn't mean they're a believer. And what it might also make us think about it when we look into the mirror is just because I've done good things for the Lord and in his name doesn't mean that I am either. That we must humble ourselves, examine ourselves, ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts to make sure that we're who we think we are, that we're where we need to be. These are sobering words. These are hard words, and they are not popular even within the bounds of Christianity. There are people who would... would write this off and say that this is not legitimate. And they would explain away the, the, the descriptions of hell that we get here in these verses. He, he continues, verse 42, they will, continue, they will throw, that is the harvesters, will throw them, that is those who are, have been weeded out of the kingdom and have caused sin and do evil, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When do you weep? When you're in, under intense grief of some kind. For yourself, for someone else. Gnashing of teeth. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, is just a hint, right? That's what we do, right? We make a face. We make a sound. This is forever, though. This should sober us. Not only for our own sakes, but for those around us who don't know the Lord, and we know them, 
and yet they don't know about Christ because we haven't told them. This is a theme that runs throughout Matthew. We know Him to make Him known. We are blessed to be a blessing, and He is given all authority. Jesus has all authority so that all nations might pledge all allegiance to Him, and He includes you and I in the process. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations is preceded by all authority. I have all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And he sends us out in that authority. Jesus does. Sobering, hard to read, hard to read aloud, hard to think about. Important for us to consider. Then the righteous will shine like the sun. That's the rest in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay? So you can see why that's a parable of gospel judgment, okay? I say gospel judgment because judgment is something we don't like to throw around, but it's a word that we actually want, which is justice, right? If somebody steals from you, you want justice, right? Somebody steals your identity, what do you want? You not only want your identity back, but you want somebody to pay for the time and grief and money and and pain and all that went with it. You want somebody to pay. You want justice. Somebody needs to go to jail for this, right? And go down the list of things that, that matter more, like someone is murdered, we want justice. You know, we're looking at, I mean, whenever, I don't know about you, but when I think of the war crimes that are being committed in the Ukrainian-Russian war, I want justice, and that's a good thing. If it's good justice, holy justice, righteous justice, right? And God is ultimately the one who brings that. And I don't think any of us would say we don't want him to exercise his holy justice on the people in our world. Now, we might not want him to exercise it in our lives because we actually deserve his justice too. And this is where God's mercy becomes more beautiful Because even though we deserve his justice for the sins that we've committed, thought, spoken, and all of those, and all my sins, they damn me. That's why that word is there. Damnation is a Bible word. And we cheapen it the way we use it. But it means hell-bound because of justice of God against sin. But he sent Jesus to receive that um, judgment on behalf of those who would believe that that's an acceptable substitute. And Jesus is proven to be an acceptable substitute for us when he's raised from the dead. That's how God shows us his approval of what Jesus did. He's good enough. Trust and follow him. And then he sent Jesus back down to make sure everybody understood the message. And then Jesus sent out his disciples to make sure everybody knew the message. And here we are 2,000 years later, And a third of the planet, we're now over 8 billion people. Do you realize that, planet Earth? We're now over 8 billion. And about a third of the planet say they're a Christian. I don't believe they're all Christians, but you get the idea. We're not at 120 people huddled in a room praying for what we need to do now, Jesus. Okay? And we're going to see a picture of that in one of these parables. So, judgment. Justice, okay? And there's one more parable that that speaks to that we're going to come back to. Now, let's go back to verse 31. These go really quickly. Verse 31, these two are parables of growth, gospel growth. The first one is, he told them another parable. This is verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, 
though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Mustard seed, okay? So this is why, this is why we say it's important to read these parables as if you're a first century Jew. Because in first century Israel, the smallest seed that they would have known is a mustard seed. But if you go to um, research online, what's the smallest seed that exists? It's not a mustard seed. There are other seeds that are smaller. But they wouldn't have known about them because they weren't in Palestine. And what ends up, it starts off as the smallest seed in one of their gardens, ends up being one of the largest garden plants, eight to 10 foot tree bush called a mustard tree bush. I don't know what they called it exactly. But his point was, out of all the seeds you're going to plant in your garden, first century Jew, this is not the seed you think is going to end up with the biggest plant, is it? And he uses that as a picture of the kingdom of God. It starts small. It starts small in our hearts. It starts small in your family. It starts small in your church. It starts small in your country. It, that's the nature of the kingdom. It starts in a way that looks harmless. 120 people huddled in the upper room right after Jesus ascends. 120 people. Jesus spends three years pouring into people with the miracles he does, and he has 120 that haven't abandoned him. That doesn't sound like a really good return on your time until you fast forward 2,000 years, and you're like, oh, this thing's blowing up. And these birds, they're from all the nations, right? Okay, he gives us another parable that says the same thing with one nuance. He told them still another parable. This is verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Anybody doing any baking this year? Nobody? Uh, okay, because you're afraid I'm going to come and get some cookies. All right, so one of the things you bake with is dough, and one of the things you put in dough to make it rise is yeast. 60 pounds. I think it's important that he says how much. I don't know how big 60 pounds is, but that sounds heavy. So I'm imagining this big blob of dough, and all you need is a pinch of yeast. Am I right? Just a pinch. Just a dabble, do you? Okay? You drop that in, you mix it in, and it spreads through the whole batch. Very, very small beginning. Big impact. Big impact. The difference is here we're working internally, whereas in the mustard seed it was more external. Okay? But the kingdom works inside out. It works from the heart which is where he started, right? Parable of the sower, four different kinds of hearts, soil condition, heart condition, and the good soil is where it comes, it, burnt, it sprouts, matures, and bears fruit. You see it? Those are the parables of growth. Now, let's go down to verse 44, pick up where we left off. Remember now, those parables were told to the crowds. This parable now, we're, with, we're in the house with just the disciples. These are the parables. These two parables are the parables of gain. These two parables are the point of the parables in chapter 13, okay? What is the gain? Is Jesus worth everything? Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy went and sold everything he had and bought that field. So the man's walking through a field, and I don't know if he steps on something and he hears a hollow sound, but didn't have banks back then. If you had something really valuable and you wanted to hide it from thieves, you buried it. And you marked it with something like a rock or a tree or something, hopefully, that didn't move. And you hoped you didn't forget about it. Well, this person buried their retirement and apparently forgot about it. 
This man walks through the field, he finds it, he looks and he sees this chest of of treasure and he's like blown away by the amount of value in this chest. He does not steal it. He does not come back at night and dig it up and steal it. He buries it again and joyfully, this is important, in his joy, it says, he went and sold everything he had. Now I'm thinking he goes home and he tells his wife, quick, we've got to have a yard sale. Everything must go. And she's going, what in the world are you thinking? What do you mean everything? No, you don't understand. What we're going to get with the money I'm going to use from the sale of everything we sell is going to be like a hundred times more. Uh, Yeah, I don't believe that, honey. I know you've read another book and you've got another great idea and you're going to go start a business and no, 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 let's not do that. Well, somehow, I don't know, either, either he's not married and he pulls this off because he's not married That's the only thing I can figure, because she's going to talk sense into him, right? Somehow he gets able to sell everything joyfully, happily, because he's going to find out he can give the best price to get that land so that he can get everything that comes with the land, including that box of incredible treasure. And that is supposed to represent Christ. It's not representing the blessings of Christ. It's not, blessing, it's not representing the kingdom of Christ. It represents Jesus himself, knowing him. Now, I imagine maybe some of us are a little disappointed right now. Really? That's better than anything I can have in this world? What if you could have everything in this world? You have to answer that question for yourself. Is Jesus worth more than any and everything I could ever have? That's a pretty big step of belief, right? It's easy to say, yeah, I believe that. He gives us one more parable just to drive it home. Everything's done twice here for us guys. We need to hear it twice. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, an entrepreneur, a business person, looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it, bought the pearl. Same idea, right? One difference. This one's looking for it. Some people in our world are looking for that treasure. Whatever they think it is, they're looking for the thing that makes life worth living. And some people are walking through life and they're not looking for it, and they find it by chance, providence, however you want to look at it. Regardless, the message is the same. Jesus is worth everything. He's worth everything. Uh, Easy for me to say, right? But even I struggle to live that out and consistently live as if I believe that were true. It's hard to swallow. But those men who started this movement and the women that were behind them I'm talking about the 11 disciples and the women who walked with Jesus, those men and women who understood the gospel in those early days. And we know 11 of those, 10 of those 11, and then I guess the 12th one, Matthias, came along. We know that they all died for their faith except for John as martyrs. You have to be pretty convinced that something is true to die for it when all you have to say is Caesar is Lord to stop it. And they were there. Our faith is in what they've written 
that we've gotten it, that we've gotten it reliably, and that it's life-changing. I get that that's not easy. In fact, if it's easy for you, that's a gift from God because for most thinking people, this is a stretch until you dig in. And then the more I study and the more I learn, the easier it is for me to believe because there's a lot of rational reasons to do that. We have a rational, reasonable faith, but it's still faith. You still, at the end of the day, have to step across a line that says, well, I don't have all the answers I want or need, but I'm going to believe this. And that's what Jesus is challenging us. And so the rest of it is pretty straightforward. There's one more parable here of judgment. Merry Christmas. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like, this is verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Now he's going to explain it. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Again, we're back at the judgment. Angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked the disciples. Yes, they replied. And he said to them, because they needed one more, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his, of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Teacher of the law would be like a scribe or, or someone who is an expert in the Old Testament law. That's what it would have been in that day, the Old Testament scriptures. Who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. This is someone who has, knows the law and sees Jesus in the law and says, well, therefore I have no choice but to truly trust and follow him as Messiah. That's what a Jew, a Christian A Messianic Jew is a completed Jew. It's a Jew who has seen Jesus in the Old Testament and believes that he is who he says he is and will do all he's promised to do. That's what faith in Jesus is. As a Gentile, a non-Jew, we get grafted in. We get in because the Jews were resistant, and so the disciples said, well, we'll go to the Gentiles, make sure that they know. And this is God's part of God's way of saying, well, if the Jews won't take it to the nations, then I'll find another person who will. Well, you know, Paul's Jew, and he did, but... It ended up becoming most of the people who have spread the gospel through all of the last 2,000 years have been non-Jews, have been Gentiles, have been the rest of us, the nations, spreading to the nations. Why? Because when you hear good news, you tell people. So it begs the question, doesn't it? Why aren't you telling people? Maybe it's because you don't believe it's good news. Or maybe you've lost that and you've forgotten why it's good news. So, so Jesus gives us this, and this is kind of a summary statement, and um, I, I credit Sean O'Donnell again with this. He says, when we understand gospel judgment and gospel growth, we better understand gospel gain, that Jesus is worth it all, okay, and that we would sell all for him, and we would even give up our very lives for him. Now, imagine a church where everybody did that. Imagine a family that did that. Everybody did that. They lived with their hands like this all the time. Now imagine yourself living that way. Careful, right? Ooh, that's, that's too close to home. <laughs> I think we would do Christmas differently. It wouldn't be buying presents for one another only. It's like, whose birthday is it again? Sorry, too close, right? And yet that's what he calls us to do all the time, to live with this mindset. None of it's mine. 
he deserves it all. And if I, if he came down and said, sell it all, give the money to the poor and come and follow me, I want to be at the place where I would say, yes, Lord, and do it immediately. And I think you want that too. But don't you get it? That is so hard to swallow. And yet that's what he calls us to. It's a high bar. Okay? I'm not talking church membership. I'm talking following the Lord Jesus. That's all I'm saying. Let's follow the Lord Jesus. Okay? We get so caught up in how we do church, we miss that it's all about how we follow Jesus. This is why missionaries have a huge advantage over the rest of us, because they don't have to play church. They just go share the gospel and share it again, and then when there's a crowd and they're like, hey, we need a church, they're like, that's for somebody else to maintain. I'm gone. I'm going to somewhere else. Well, what if the church was the missionary? Right now in America, the church is almost a mission field. Shame on us. Shame on me. But God is merciful and gracious. I mean, we are here 2,000 years later after all, right? So this Christmas, let's kind of get past some of the nostalgia and some of the gift giving. That's fine. I love all that too. But let's do more than just be content in, in, a, in a, a silent night Christmas with candle lights, which we'll do on Christmas Eve, right? We're going to do all that. Let's not be content with a Christmas. Because that first Christmas was not sweet, it was not silent, and it was not gentle. It was violent. Led to the murdering of children within that first two years because of a king who was threatened by something he believed. I'll end with this. On Twitter, I saw this tweet. It was essentially, it was a a guy I follow. I don't know him, but I follow him on Twitter, and, and so I... I'm interested in his tweets. He's a believer. And he says, isn't it amazing that King Herod, the wicked half-Jew king of Israel in the day that Jesus was born, he's in his palace. The wise men come. They've been following the star. So it's probably been a couple of years, less than a couple of years since he's been born. They say, we've followed the stars. We've been doing the research. Maybe it's 70 days later. And, and there's, a, there's a king that's supposed to have been born, and king of the Jews, and we're here to find him. And Herod, the most paranoid king that ever existed, probably, except maybe some of those Roman emperors, it's like, oh, well, we need to find out who this is so I can kill him. I already killed mom. I already killed brothers, maybe a sister or two. I mean, this guy, drop of a hat, would kill people if it threatened his throne. So he's like, scribes, Pharisees, and of course they come kowtow to King Herod because he's king the religious leaders, and he's like, what is this nonsense they're talking about? Oh, yes, it's in the scriptures, born in Bethlehem, about now. Yeah, you're right, it is there. <laughs> they're figuring it out too, or seeing it for the first time. So Herod sends them off. The tweet is, isn't it amazing that Herod believed the prophecy so that he could find and kill the Messiah that the prophecy was about? And if you really understood the prophecy, and maybe he just didn't, you'd realize that's not a war you're going to (laughs) win. Maybe you should bow instead of kill. But don't we sometimes do the same thing? We hear the truth and we go for power. This was the point of his tweet. We go for the lust of power instead of approaching it the way the scriptures indicate in the first place. We do that in the church. We do that in in our own lives. We do that as a country right? 
But the standard isn't for the whole world. The standard is for his followers, the people of God. That's the standard we're called to, to trust and follow the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you're worth everything. I can stand here and say it, and yet I struggle with the very living of that statement every day. And I don't think I'm alone. Lord, we put ourselves at the mercy of God, and we ask for you to to work in our hearts in such a way that we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we meditate on your word, as we seek to believe it, understand it, comprehend it, and put it into practice. Help us humbly receive the word, the good seed, and help us confidently and urgently share that same word with others, demonstrating our belief. We repent of not doing that well. We repent of our sin of silence, of being caught up and more impressed with American Christmas than Jesus Christmas. Lord, change our hearts. You are gracious and merciful and quick to forgive. May we not abuse that gift, but may we be changed from the inside out knowing that the kingdom of God starts very, very small, but explodes into something so massively transformative that it will lead to the changing of our world in 100%. And as followers of Jesus, we get to be a part of that. Help us believe and receive. Help us to rest in that truth. Because with that resting in that truth comes true rest and a faithfulness that follows that only you are worthy of. Help us now as we respond to these ideas, these things you're doing in our minds and in our hearts even now. Help us to have the courage to believe in Christ's name. Amen. In a second, we're going to stand up. We're going to sing another song. Musicians, you can go ahead and come. The Lord's Supper will be a part of that time, that part of that response time, and you're welcome to participate if you're a follower of Christ in good standing with Christ. That means that you don't have any unconfessed sins. We invite you to come and celebrate that. Take a piece of bread, represents the body of Christ. Cup of grape juice represents the blood of Christ. The body broken, not broken bones, but broken, beaten, abused, and the blood shed, meaning his life was given. Okay? We do this in remembrance of him. He said, do this to remember what I did on the cross so that you could be free, so that we could be forgiven. You can be forgiven. There is not a sin that you have committed that cannot be forgiven. Okay? But you must respond. Repent and believe that he will bring forgiveness and healing to your life. Wholeness, fully, inside out. 